Two and a Half Admins, episode 65. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your blog post plug, Alan, is FreeBSD Papers We Love, Jails and Clonable Network Stacks. Yeah, so Tom wrote an article here uh, going over two of his favorite papers uh, having to do with FreeBSD. The first one is about containing the omnipotent root user, and that's about Jails. And then the other one is uh, Clonable Network Stacks, which is the VNet feature in FreeBSD. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. Something you found, Jim, was an article entitled These Parents Built a School App, Then the City Called the Cops. This is in Sweden. Yeah, Stockholm specifically. So uh, Stockholm in Sweden spent a whole lot of money commissioning one of these school apps that's supposed to be the same app for teachers and parents and students and share all the documents where they're supposed to be shared and give notifications when notifications should be given and replace things that everybody understands, like email. And unsurprisingly, like most of those apps, it ended up sucking. And this particular one ended up sucking so badly that some parents with IT experience got together and reverse engineered it to figure out you know, what the APIs on the server side looked like and built their own client to interface with it just to perform the parent functions. And uh, they rolled this as an open source app available to anybody. And unfortunately, the school's response was... <laughs> You know, it was what school administrator responses to innovative things usually tend to be, which is stop or we'll send you to prison. Yeah, it's not uncommon to see these things where, you know, the Swedish government spent effectively $120 million on this app and it turned out to be trash and not really useful. And it turns out a couple of hobbyists with a little bit of time could make something better for obviously a lot less money. And it mostly makes me wonder, like, all these COVID apps and so on that the governments have for identity tracing or even just the fancy QR code scanners we have for the proof of vaccination here in Canada now. It's like, how much money was wasted building these terrible apps when we should just require that these applications built by the government are open source and people could have just improved it and the official one would have gotten better instead? Well, the problem with that is that most of the people that you can hire to do app development, they rely on a bunch of tools that they've either licensed elsewhere or that, you know, they sell to people and they don't want to open source. And they're just not interested in building a truly open source app to begin with. It's harder than you might think to pay people to make open source applications for you. It can be done, but it's certainly more difficult. And it's maybe at this point a little unrealistic to expect, you know, like, school administrators to be able to navigate that extra step. The thing that really irritated me about this is that the government's rationale for saying like stopper will throw you in prison was this idea that, well, maybe the open source app that the parents built is, you know, getting access to data that it shouldn't. The typical, you know, ooh, they're hacking boogaboo. And that just really pisses me off because that implies that they're doing data validation client side instead of server side to begin with. And this has got to be one of the easiest possible apps to do all the the validation on the server side because you actually log into it with your own unique school ID that is directly tied, you know, for you as a parent to your kids as students and to the classes that those kids take. So it's just the easiest thing in the world to be like, you know, no, I'm not going to return data to you that you don't have access to. This idea that we should be prosecuting somebody else who makes a client application, no, because it shouldn't be possible to build a client application that does anything wrong. 
If that's even possible, you've got a bug on the server side you need to fix. And of course, rather than looking for any such problems like that and just making certain that they do sanitize inputs and only return records that they should on the server side, what the government did instead was uh, the usual, oh, well, we'll just quietly change the private API over here to break the client. Like, nothing works any different. It doesn't work any better. We just changed it so that that other client wouldn't work until they reverse engineered again to do the same thing they were already doing. It's just, it's a little depressing, honestly. It, it doesn't seem that difficult to figure out what you're freaking doing wrong. Yeah, especially as it was open source and not even a restrictive copyleft license. This was an Apache license. They could have just taken the code and done what they wanted with it. Well, I think Jim made his points about that, and I agree that never having written a, a, an app for a phone, I imagine you end up using a lot of extra frameworks and stuff. As we've seen the app ecosystem get better, nobody writes an app in raw Android APIs anymore. They use a bunch of frameworks, and that will get complicated when trying to make a, a properly open source app. No, but I'm not even saying that they had to keep it open source, but I'm saying these parents made something yeah. that was open source. They could examine exactly how it worked and use the lessons learned from that to make the core product better. Or even just completely ignore it, pretend it didn't exist, and it's no skin off their nose either way, because again, any input sanitization for things that are upload and validation for access for things that are downloaded should be enforced ironclad on the server side in the first place. If you allow a client, in theory, to have access to data that it shouldn't, if it just makes an API call, then you have screwed up when you build your server side API. And, you know, this is not something like incredibly complex and latency sensitive and, you know, oh my God, this is a first person shooter and I need to maintain a hundred frames per second. And that's why I'm sending the client information about what's behind the wall. Cause I don't have time to parse it out server side. You don't have any of all that going on. I mean, this is a database backed app that like shows you messages and grades and stuff. That's it. Like it's not that hard. Yeah. Or it's like what your kid's schedule for the week is. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it is interactive to some extent as well. Like you can uh, report absence and stuff like that. So it's it's not just like read only. Well, it's interactive in the sense that, you know, it should give you an answer to the things that you tapped within, I don't know, 500 to 1500 milliseconds. But again, that's a big difference between that and like, you know, this is a AAA first person shooter and we need to get 100 plus frames per second. There's no need for like 10 millisecond response. But there is kind of a happy ending to this in that the software which translated means open school platform has seen interest from other cities within Sweden. So it may actually end up being an open source success story. Well, that's not a happy ending. That's a potential happy ending. Like we're still in the middle part right now. And Joe, we're not going to have a real happy ending until you pronounce the Swedish <laughs> IT cop's name on air. Oh, you mean Sweden's data regulator? Okay, right. <clears throat> Here we go. Integritaskidismigdighetten. <laughs> now say it three times fast. <laughs> Sorry, Swedish listeners. I know some of you are out there. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. 
Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some feedback then. Patrick got in touch to say, love the show, but I had to laugh this week. You guys gave macOS a hard time for supporting some workflows better than others, and then when asked about hibernation, you didn't even blink before spending most of the answer telling the questioner that they shouldn't want hibernation. Maybe there was some discussion that had to be edited out, but the final edit leaves a very funny immediate switch from, can you believe macOS doesn't equally support all workflows, straight to, of course Linux and FreeBSD don't support that extremely common workflow. Except it's not extremely common. It's not that, you know, oh, you shouldn't want that. It's more a thing of, you know, if you really want that, you're going to be in a very narrow minority that really wants that. Forget the Linux and FreeBSD part. I mean, Windows supports hibernation, but I encounter it actually configured and being actively used on a client machine approximately every third Thursday of never. Yeah, I more often see the question of how do I get rid of this giant hyper file, the root of my main drive that's taking up 110% of my uh, the size of my RAM for no reason. Yeah, because uh, Windows hibernation requires a completely separate file for hibernation from its... It's got hibernation, it's got a swap file, and it's got a page file. <laughs> Yay, Windows. If you want the page file on a not the system drive, it ends up making a small page file on the system drive and then the big one on the other drive. And then some applications will just not work because they will try to only use the small one on the first drive. And they'll be like, ah, you only have... Uh, I had to change it around in order to fix something. I had to make the page file smaller to be able to shrink the size of a partition to repartition somebody's computer. And then the video games wouldn't work because they couldn't get enough memory. Like they just The virtual address space they couldn't get because there wasn't enough swap on the system drive. And then I had to turn it all back around. No, what you had to do is sell them more RAM. Yeah. And you messed up. Well, I think they already had like 16 gigs in the machine. They didn't need more RAM. Like the game wasn't going to be using swap. It was just upset that there wasn't more than, you know, four megabytes of swap available. They should have definitely downloaded some more RAM, I think. Yes. I have yet to encounter a game that won't play with swap completely disabled on Windows. Well, I think the problem here is that it wasn't completely disabled. It probably would have worked fine if it was completely disabled. But it was set up on this other drive, and so it was very confused. Anyway, Patrick, I don't know what you're talking about. We record this totally live and don't edit out any of the dumb stuff that any of us say. Especially Joe. You have no idea. Joe is his own harshest critic. But we're not far behind. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay, Mark says, I heard in episode 62 that Jim was lusting after MagSafe for his phone. I've been using something for years that gives the same functionality. On eBay, you can find magnetic USB cables. They have a tiny slimline magnet dongle that stays in your USB or lightning port and a USB cable with a special magnetic connector that attaches to it. It works remarkably well and I can't live without them. I am familiar with the concept of those, but every one of them that I've seen uh, sticks out visibly from the phone and I cram my phone in my pocket and I don't want a thing plugged into USB while my phone is crammed into my pocket doing God knows what. Yeah, and Mark did link to quite a nice looking one of them, 
But ultimately, if you have something plugged into a port on your phone and your phone then goes in your pocket, you are going to damage the port long term. That's just how it goes. So this is a terrible, terrible idea, Mark. And that you haven't broken the port on your phone yet is a just a miracle, quite frankly. Don't do this, is my only advice. It's it's a terrible idea. It would be an okay idea if there was some mythical version of this that did not protrude whatsoever beyond the boundaries of the USB-C port itself. Hmm. The problem, of course, then would be it would be you know very difficult to get back out, but at least it wouldn't catch on things in your pocket. But as it is, yeah, I'm completely on Team Joe here that nothing should be plugged into your USB-C and protruding from your phone while it's, you know, in pockets or bags or God knows what, and anything could catch on it from any direction. You know, I've had even the same concern about having, like, the older style YubiKeys and so on hanging out of my laptop. It's like, is this just going to break off and either kill the YubiKey or, or worse, kill the USB port? And, you know, I've seen the ones that are basically flush with just the tiny bit that sticks out to you be able to, uh, to unplug it someday. So it's like you're saying, you'd want something that was completely flush and that gets really complicated. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com support if you want to learn more about it. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or any feedback, show at 2.5admins.com. Okay, Frank says, I run a little NUC, which I can access via Samba, SSH, and others. Recently, I discovered a comfortable option to add a new public key to authorized keys on the NUC to gain access from new devices via SSH. What I'm trying to say is that I improved the security of my SSH login by certificate-only authentication, but then I have the Samba share with username and password authentication. Can that be considered a backdoor? I suppose if the Samba share is allowed to modify the authorized keys file then I could go in with a username and password and add my key. Yeah, like, have you just set it to be your home directory? Well, by, by default, Samba does make your home directory shared so that if you connect to it from Windows, you can have your home directory accessible. Maybe your inferior FreeBSD Samba packaging does that by default. The one shipped with Ubuntu doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, not in Ubuntu. FreeBSD, there's no configuration by default. You'd have to use the default Samba config and then configure it to do that. The config stanza for sharing your home dir is present in the default that ships with Ubuntu's Samba package, but it's commented out. You'd have to uncomment it to enable it. Yeah, and no guide is going to tell you to use your home directory, surely. Well, there are a bunch of reasons why you might want your home directory accessible, but that's not really the question. The question is, does the fact that you can access stuff with Samba using username and password to backdoor against your certificate only, I, I suppose, but it depends also... Is your Samba accessible from the internet? Mm. Hopefully not. And SSH maybe is. And so maybe it's kind of a backdoor, but if it's just that you have to be on the LAN in order to log in with a username and password over Samba, but SSH, which is exposed to internet, you have to have a certificate. Otherwise, you don't get to play. And whether one is a backdoor to the other largely depends on what it is you're sharing with Samba. If you practice good file sharing hygiene and Samba is only exposing directories that contain data and nothing but, then there's not really anything that compromising a password will get you great. I mean, every extra toehold is an extra toehold and they could, you know, maybe try to drop an executable in there and hope that you'll manually run it. But, you know, they're not just directly going to be compromising your system there. 
the only way to directly compromise the system, you know, without needing any further interaction with the sysadmin would not be brute forcing a Samba password. It would just be, you know, having access to a vulnerability to get a shell via Samba's process, which you don't need a Samba password for. So I guess the answer really is not really probably <laughs> to the question of whether Samba could be considered a backdoor to an SSH, you know, key auth required system. Yeah, I think it's a, the right answer is make sure your Samba is only running on the interfaces it should be, and then you're probably fine. Yeah, and only sharing the directories that it should be. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it doesn't have right permissions to things it shouldn't. Although to be clear, you know, you would also have to do something really screwy with your .ssh directory to accidentally expose that via Samba, because when the system creates it, it has to be 700. So only your UID can access it. And as a matter of fact, if you go and you change that to something less restrictive later, SSH will refuse to use your keys until you fix it. Yeah, it gives you a big warning, doesn't it? Yeah, you would you would have to do something really weird and convince Samba to actually run as your UID <laughs> to accidentally expose that directory. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Okay, Mayya says, I'm trying to set up monitoring systems at work. Currently, we're using PRTG for live monitoring, and I recently have deployed Greylog to monitor logs. I've tried to push alternative solutions for live monitoring like Nagios or Prometheus and Grafana, but as a junior sysadmin, I have little say against the senior admins here, and they want to stay with what they know. My question is, what do your monitoring systems look like? Do you only use Nagios, or do you have multiple systems for different tasks? Any general advice on the topic? Another thing, in a previous episode, you mentioned good top-level domain providers other than GoDaddy and its gang. I couldn't find the episode and can't remember which ones you mentioned. Would you recommend one for me? Well, we did actually have one as a potential sponsor, but then uh, they didn't buy it, so they're not getting a mention. The one that I use is Namecheap. It's the one that I use also. I should mention, though, this we're, we're actually not talking about top-level domain providers. I don't know who you go to get your own top-level domain. We're just talking about domain registrars. Yes, uh, for like .com and so on. Yeah, top level would be pay ICANN $100,000 and then build up your own infrastructure. Or there's a couple of companies that offer pre-built ones for if you want to make .pepsi or .goatsy. So Namecheap is one I also use. Uh, yeah, I also used to use them for SSL certificates in the odd time when I need not Let's Encrypt for some reason or other. And then the other one I use is Gandhi, Gandhi Bar. They're French, I think, because they offer their highest discount level to open source developers. And so I get a, a bigger discount from them. Well, I just started using Namecheap because as the name suggests, 
it's the cheapest or the cheapest one that I could find that has a reasonable interface. And I've just never had a problem with it. Yeah, they were an Enom reseller for a long time and then became their own accredited registrar. I actually use them in spite of the name. Uh, the, the name is a little bit of a turnoff for me. I, I do want, you know, the services to be reasonably priced, preferably inexpensive. But my biggest thing looking for them, and I did a lot of research before I selected on them as, you know, my registrar for the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, was, uh, you know, I just, I wanted something that was no nonsense, bare bones, no model's hair blowing in the wind and an MP4 loop on the freaking interface when you're trying to manage your crap. I just want a simple text interface that works, things that get registered in a timely fashion, who has server updates that don't get batched and not applied until, you know, 24 hours from when you entered them. And uh, Namecheap ticked all those boxes as well as being genuinely inexpensive. So highly recommended. Yeah. And then the other feature I use at Gandhi is their API, both for Let's Encrypt to actually add and remove the uh, DNS records to prove I own the domain and so on. And uh, also just for our own automation, their API is very nice. But I think the Let's Encrypt, most Let's Encrypt clients support whatever the Namecheap one is too, right? I don't know. I've never tried to integrate it, uh, you know, with the the registrar. I just do the, the Apache plugin, and it does HTTPS verification. You're good to go. Ah, okay. For the couple of domains I'm thinking of here is I have Gandhi hosting the DNS for me, and so I'm using the API to add the the DNS records. All right. What about the monitoring question then? It's all Nagios for me. A large part of the reason for that is because you can write your own Nagios plugins for specifically whatever exactly the thing is that you want to monitor. And something that's very important to me is not getting the usual monitoring solution that just does this giant grab bag and shows you every conceivable metric on everything. I want to only check the four or five things, some of which are, you know, fairly complex and derived, some of which are very basic, but I only want to check those things on those servers. And Nagio supplies very well for that kind of thing. You can write your own plugins to look at, you know, like for me, the big things are I want to see my zpool status. I want to get a warning if, you know, a redundant array has thrown a disk. I want to get a warning or a critical if snapshots are out of date, you know, that kind of thing. And then for individual servers, there may be something like maybe you want to know that a status page loads properly on some industrial server that you've got in your organization. Well, you can very easily write a plugin to just grab that status page and parse it and say, you know, does this look like a reasonable status page or does it look like things, you know, have gone pear-shaped and warn you if they have. Nagios suits all those things very well. And uh, it's kind of a special forces versus general infantry approach. If you're trying to have a ton of junior admins, you know, doing the work and getting elbow deep in the servers, Nagios is usually not going to be the best answer, but if you've got a small, talented team that you know wants to do things the best way they can, it works very well. Yeah, uh, we use Nagios because the team is like one full-time person, one part-time person, and me in a pinch. And we're having to monitor like 150 servers that usually have between one and 10 containers on them that we sometimes often monitor as if they were a separate machine. And so, like Jim was saying, being able to monitor only the things we care about on each one means we keep the number of checks to a reasonable number. Because with 150 servers, if we checked 100 metrics on every one of them, it would start to get out of hand. We also do a mix with Nagios of active checks, where Nagios actually calls out to the machine and checks something. And then also some passive checks, where the machines will just report a bunch of metrics batched together 
back to the monitoring system, but the monitoring system will set it off an alert if it doesn't get these passive checks for a couple of hours in a row or something. So like our Varnish and Nginx web servers send passive stuff about stats, like queries, the number of queries they've seen. And then we use a plugin called Nagios Graph to actually graph those in Nagios so we can see, hey, we see this CPU usage is a lot higher on that server. Oh, there's a corresponding spike in requests per second. That makes sense. And things like that. Or like even we monitor smart data on the hard drives, but we don't keep it all. We just look at like reallocated sectors and pending sectors and temperature and everything else we don't care about. What about being a junior sysadmin who has very little say against the senior admins? There's not really much you can do about that, right? It depends on the seniors and it depends on the juniors. I mean, yeah, sometimes it's a complete brick wall and it doesn't matter how talented you are as a you know junior IT person, you're not going to sway whoever is your boss. I don't think that's a whole lot different for people outside IT either. It's just kind of a fact of life. To some degree, that's that's a feature not a bug because, you know, it's not the you, the junior admin show, you know, it's the entire company or organization and it needs to have a stable chain of command. Ideally, the seniors would listen to you to some degree and, you know, give you some rain to experiment, but it just doesn't always happen. You can always implement, you know, your own skunk works. Like if you're talking passive monitoring that, you know, you don't have to install, you know, active clients on something else. It's pretty easy to just do your own skunk works to test your ideas out. Then you have, you know, more to show and talk to your seniors about. You can also do a completely virtual setup, whether it's like, you know, a home lab or like a self-contained skunk works, you know, in your office where you set up like your own VM hosting on your own workstation and set up a very small network to monitor your way. And then you can actually show it to people and see what they think. But you do have to be prepared for that. Either they're still just going to say no. We've done it this way for a certain amount of time and we're not going to change it because we know it works. Or even just in some cases, we have a lot of institutional knowledge about how to deal with this and we're not ready to uproot all that and try to add new institutional knowledge for everybody to figure out the way you've done that thing. Because there can also very, very easily be an issue where you've got an incredibly talented junior who basically just kind of runs amok and they build systems that work really great until they don't, but nobody ever understood them but that junior. Sometimes it happens when that junior has retired as a very senior gray beard later and you have an entire career legacy worth of just wreckage in their wake where, yeah, maybe they did make themselves the one person that kept the whole company running the whole time where they were there, but now they're not there. It kind of comes back to that startup mentality that we talked about with Facebook when they had the outage that, yeah, there are ways to move fast and break a few things and ultimately do a better job of it. But the established systems work for a reason and they might not be the latest, shiniest stuff, but they still work and people understand it. Yeah, that's the two things I would go be uh, on there is genius admins often always want to do the newest shiny thing or they just they've heard of this new thing and they want to play with it and you know my production isn't necessarily the place for you to play with the newest shiny thing and just because we're using something old that has a web interface that looks like it's from the late 90s or the early 2000s doesn't mean it's not a good monitoring system the other one i would say is kind of more to jim's point was the kind of the system and philosophy of always be quitting which means it doesn't actually mean quit your job, but always be preparing for you not to be doing your job anymore and other people having to take it over. 
right? You don't want to end up like Jim was describing the guy who built all these new systems and, and with hand care and feeding, kept them all running for years. But if he tries to go on vacation or retire or something, that all of it falls apart. You really will need to build maintainable systems that anybody can do. And, you know, you want to kind of keep in the back of your mind, I want to build all this stuff in such a way that I can leave someday and it won't be a problem. At least document it if you're going to do that. Ideally, have it self-documented and document it. Yeah, the the main reason to document it is because when it's four in the morning and your phone is ringing and you're half awake, docs you wrote that you can understand are a lot better than trying to remember, how did I set this up three years ago? Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.